0: Thank uh-huh. the baton a john williams musical journey join host jeff cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer john williams starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years this episode listens to the music from munich made in 2005 and here's your host jeff cummings Break out the confetti and the party hats, it's time to celebrate the 100th episode of The Baton. When I started this podcast, the 100th episode seemed so far away, but now it's here. It seems like a lifetime ago that I was talking about the score to Daddy-O and I Passed for White, which were the first two films to feature a John Williams score. And what a ride it's been since then. I've talked to musicians who have played on some of the top scores of Williams' career, And had co-hosts who've made their episodes even better. I've watched films that I probably would have never watched if it weren't for this podcast. And of course, I've heard from listeners who were there at the beginning, as well as those who found the show months later. Without all of you, well, I still would be doing the show. But knowing that I have so many people around the world tuning in gives me so much motivation and inspiration. I can't thank you enough. And of course, this podcast was nominated for one of the best podcasts of the year. And that was just really kind of one of the highlights of my life. The only bad thing about this special episode is that the music we will be discussing is in no way celebratory. In fact, it's probably the most emotionally somber music Williams has written since Schindler's List, for a movie that also deals with a real-life tragedy involving Jewish people. But it's okay to celebrate this music, because it's a great entry into the Williams filmography. Steven Spielberg was 25 years old and just starting his filmmaking career when eight members of the Palestinian terrorist group Black September took nine members of the Israeli contingent hostage at the 1972 Olympics. Certainly, Spielberg knew of the incident, though Spielberg has never publicly said if he did watch the 1972 Olympics and the news coverage of the Munich Massacre. Whether or not he had vivid recollections of those dark days in September, Spielberg made sure to do his research about the facts of the massacre and the Israeli response, which would be the main focus of his film. I didn't want to do a documentary, Spielberg said, but many aspects of the film suggest otherwise. Spielberg cast somewhat unknown actors to play the five men who were selected to kill 11 people they believed were connected to the Munich massacre. If all five, or even one of the five had been big Hollywood stars, your mind might have instantly remembered that this was a movie, much like the casting of Tom Hanks did for us in Saving Private Ryan. Jeffrey Rush, who had won an Oscar eight years earlier, was the biggest movie star at the time, and he only appears in about five scenes. Eric Banna wasn't an unknown actor when he was cast as Avner Kaufman, who was the leader of the Secret Assassin Squad, but he wasn't really a big movie star either. He had a small but pivotal role in Black Hawk Down in 2001 and he did play Bruce Banner in the 2003 version of The Hulk, which was one of the many misfires in bringing that story to the screen. Daniel Craig was probably the second most popular among the five of the actors, having played a key role in Road to Perdition the year before and a small role in Elizabeth back in 1998. Ciaran Hines was also in Road to Perdition, killed off early in the film by Daniel Craig's character. Matthew Kosovitz had been the charming love interest in 2001's Amelie, and Hans Zickler had been mostly in German films before getting the role of a stuffy accountant assassin in Munich. So, those were the five leading men that would take us through this story. Now, most of the time, I felt I was indeed watching a documentary-style film, but you could tell that there were some liberties taken in the story. After all, this mission was so secret, that even Israel's Prime Minister Golda Bayer was kept mostly out of the loop for plausible deniability. So Spielberg and his screenwriters, Tony Kushner and Eric Roth, had some wiggle room in recreating some scenes, though they used the book Vengeance as their main source material. And the quest for veracity throughout the film was also evident with the use of the music. Just as he did with Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, John Williams was very sparse with his score, giving us only 38 minutes of music in the film. That means that soundtrack CD you enjoy contains about 30 more minutes of music that isn't in the film. It was either written for the CD or was unused music intended to be in the film. The limited amount of music adds to the realism of the film, only coming in to heighten some of the scenes, just as Williams did with Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. If Spielberg wanted this to be a typical Hollywood thriller based on a real event, John Williams would have given us more than two hours of music for this movie, which runs two hours and 44 minutes through the end credits. The Munich score was recorded in November 2005, just one month before the film's release. Spielberg wasn't done with filming until September 2005, and if he factor in a month to get a rough edit of the film together, that gave John Williams just a month to put together a score. It is quite possible that Williams was able to sketch out some ideas based on certain scenes or through discussions with Spielberg, but Williams wasn't able to see the entire picture until at least October. In Spielberg's last film, War of the Worlds, John Williams gave us zero themes for the main characters. In Munich, though, Williams wrote four melodies that provide the bulk of the score as heard in the film. The first one we hear comes in the form of a female voice wailing over a string instrumental accompaniment during the studio logos and the opening title graphic. That's Lizbeth Scott giving us the sorrowful vocals. Scott makes her debut on a Williams score here, having previously served as soloist on the animated films Sinbad and Shrek 2. The same year as Munich, she could be heard in Harry Gregson Williams' score for the first installment of The Chronicles of Narnia. Now what you hear Scott singing in Munich are not actual words, at least not in Hebrew, which is what I initially thought they were and what pretty much everybody who has reviewed the score believes is being sung. I spoke with cantors, and I have spoke with Hebrew scholars, and all of them agree that Hebrew is not being sung here. What is being sung? We don't know. But what I think I have found out is that after discussions with Williams, who was considering using Hebrew texts, Scott was asked to just improvise on the melody Williams wrote for her, and that's what you hear in the final version. This melody that she sings would be the theme for the Israeli hostages, and after it appears in the opening credits, it only appears once more in the very heavily criticized scene in which we see Eric Bana's Avner making love to his wife while simultaneously visualizing how the hostages died. I found myself confused and trying not to laugh even as we see Avner reach an emotional orgasm at the same time the hostages are riddled with bullets by the terrorists. It was such a weird scene, and it just didn't seem to fit anywhere. And here's a brief portion of Lizbeth Scott's vocals from that scene. That scene is the third of three flashbacks to the Munich Massacre. The first flashback, which shows us the moments after the terrorists break into the Israelis' dorm room, features our second theme. It's a sad melody on strings that uses Williams' signature descending notes, but always tries to stay strong in the middle of the chaos. Let's attach this theme to the hostages as well. The theme gets a variation on an ethnic flute played hauntingly by Pedro Eustache as the Israelis try to fight back against the invaders. Any other composer-director team would have wanted to make the music more action-oriented instead of making a statement about the moment. The scene itself is very, very emotional and very, very violent. If you have a queasy stomach, you might not want to be able to watch it. Men are riddled with bullets. There's a man who gets stabbed in the head. And through it all, that flute makes it even more heartbreaking to experience. And The main theme of the film comes 28 minutes into the movie. John Williams, and just about everyone else, calls this theme Avner's theme but I'm just going to call it the main theme because it is not attached to Avner. I know, everybody. I did this once before with the Hogwarts theme and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, calling it instead the Gryffindor theme. I'm standing by my statement for that movie, and I'm standing by my statement for the main theme in Munich. Whenever it plays, Ovner is not the focus of the scene, really. If it were Avner's theme... I think it would have played in the scene when he's calling his wife in New York and he hears his daughter say, da-da. That would have been the perfect time to play Avner's theme quietly on the piano or something. But there's no music in that scene, showing us that there is no thematic material just for Avner. This main theme, which might be associated mostly with our five assassins as a group, is introduced by Adam Del Monte on the guitar in the first scene featuring all five of the assassins. The dialogue goes away when the music comes on, giving us plenty of time to digest this theme. I like this main theme a lot, and it brings out the humanity in these men who were hired to be cold-blooded killers. As we will discover in the course of the film, their beliefs in what they are doing is shaken to the point that some of them want to quit, showcasing again their humanity. To further highlight that the main theme is not solely for Avner, the oboe plays this theme as Avner and Daniel Craig's character discover one of their teammates dead on a park bench. This scene lasts just 50 seconds, but Williams expands on the music with an extra two minutes on the track, appropriately titled Discovering Hans. Abner and the rest of his team don't get a dark theme to highlight their actions, but the Palestinian terrorists do, in the form of synthesized pulses that play as the first piece of underscore in the film as we see the terrorists begin to execute their plan to infiltrate the Adlitz village in Munich in the middle of the night. This is our fourth theme of the film. piano will play a bigger role as the scene gets more intense. theme comes back twice as the assassins shadow their first target in Italy and later as they prepare to shoot the supposed mastermind of the Munich attack on a street in London. It's the first time in a while that electronics have been so prominently displayed in a Williams score and it appropriately sets the mood whenever we hear it in the film. I always understand when I hear it that bad people are in the scene. The longest stretch of music in the film, other than the music in the final scene that segues into the credits, comes in a lengthy montage when Omner begins to believe someone is out to kill him. He tears his room apart looking for hidden bombs, becoming more and more unraveled. One of the other assassins who had left the team earlier in the film is shown in his workshop dismantling the remaining bombs he had built for the mission. As he did with the first flashback scene, Williams doesn't overstate the obvious with the music here. The strings float in and out, and it sounds like the piano is playing in this, but perhaps the piano strings are being plucked instead of struck as they normally would. It certainly adds to the eerie atmosphere that has zero dialogue. Just a note about the editing of the music for this scene on the soundtrack CD, titled Bearing the Burden. Some of it doesn't appear in the movie. Most of it does, but it's edited out of order to make for a better listening experience. I'm not sure Williams as producer made a good decision here, and I say that because I often skip over this track when listening to the score. For example, the rendition of the main theme that plays to close out this sequence in the film is put in the middle of this track. I won't give away the conversation that takes place at the end of the film, or give away the haunting image that closes out the film to hammer home the theme of never-ending conflict. But the music from the moment we see that image until the end of the credits remains gentle, peaceful, yearning. It's clear that Spielberg, who is Jewish, couldn't avoid taking a side in this film, even though he continually said he was not taking sides. And the music to close out the film definitely takes sides to continue to mourn the victims of Munich. We can't assume that anyone working on a film will leave their personal beliefs at the door. It's part of what makes filmmakers so good at their jobs, including John Williams. As the credits start, we get the main theme on strings that is just a 42-second prelude of what is to come later. The next piece of music is a lovely instrumental rendition of the vocal melody Elizabeth Scott gave us earlier in the film. In the film version, it starts in the strings, but it's on the clarinet on the soundtrack CD. Then it swells into a heftier arrangement. The best is saved for last. The final three minutes of the film gives us a strings-only performance of the main theme, a eulogy of sorts called A Prayer for Peace. It feels like this piece is crying for all the victims of political violence in the Middle East and the collateral damage the world has felt for generations. There was only three minutes of this piece in the film version, but it's an extra minute longer on the soundtrack. Part of that extra minute is a solo cello at the beginning laying out the basic parts of the main melody before the rest of the string section takes it further. This next section is incredible. As the cellos play part of the theme, then the violins join in for the resolution. The next 90 seconds are the real meat of the piece, it always gets me emotionally. This is one of my top three strings-only compositions that Williams has written, in a perpetual tie with Blood Moon from Images and Arlington from JFK. Each one has their merits, and each one grabs me emotionally, though for different reasons. As I mentioned on the Images and JFK episodes, my favorite of the three is whichever one I'm listening to at the moment. But perhaps I'm ready, finally, to make a definitive choice here and now. And because it's the only one that brings me to actual tears, or nearly close to it, A Prayer for Peace is officially the best strings-only composition by John Williams. There. Hands down, no argument. So Munich as a film doesn't bring me to tears in the way that Schindler's List had me grabbing for tissues in almost every scene in the final 45 minutes. Critics noted that saying Spielberg's aim of creating a dialogue about the cycle of violence takes away from making us care about the characters who are performing the violent acts. Roger Ebert and a few others ranked Munich as one of the top five movies of 2005 and apparently the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences took their suggestion and nominated Munich for Best Picture. It was the fifth Spielberg film to be nominated for Best Picture and Spielberg earned his sixth nomination as director. His longtime collaborator Michael Kahn earned a nomination, as did his longest-running collaborator John Williams. This nomination for Munich was a historic one, marking his 45th nomination when combined with his songwriting nominations and nominations for writing musicals. It put him in a tie with composer-conductor Alfred Newman for second on the all-time list of Oscar nominations, while Disney stands at the top of that mountain with 59. And... Will we ever see somebody reach that? Highly unlikely. Nomination number 44 came the same year for Memoirs of a Geisha, giving John Williams two nominations in the same year for Original Score. The other nominees were Brokeback Mountain, Pride and Prejudice, and The Constant Gardener. Now, why did Brokeback Mountain win the Oscar? As I mentioned in the Memoirs of a Geisha episode, most voters simply pick the film that is a Best Picture nominee. But why didn't they pick Munich, since it was also a Best Picture nominee? If you remember the hubbub surrounding Brokeback Mountain, the story of two male cowboys who began a romantic relationship in the 1960s, you might remember a number of Oscar voters saying they would never vote for it as the Best Picture of the Year. And there were even actors such as Ernest Borgnine who outright said they thought Brokeback Mountain was a great film, but would never vote for it as Best Picture because of the gay subject matter so they wanted to give the film something else as a consolation prize. But what about Munich, he ask, since it didn't win any other awards while Brokeback Mountain won Best Directing and Best Screenplay? Your guess is as good as mine on that one. All things point to Munich having a good chance of winning in the original score category based on odds and Oscar voting history, but it's likely there was little vote-splitting with some people wanting to give John Williams an Oscar that year, but not real sure which of the two scores was the best. Though the Oscar ballad doesn't contain the names of the composers, most people likely knew that John Williams wrote two of the Oscar-nominated scores. The Grammys also threw John Williams a bone, well, two of them, in 2007, when the Munich soundtrack received a nomination, as did Prayer for Peace in the Best Instrumental Composition category. And for the eighth time in his career... John Williams picked up the Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition for A Prayer for Peace, beating out his own composition for the end credits for Memoirs of a Geisha. Finding the other nominees in that category has proven to be a difficult task, since the official Grammy records don't list them, but they were most likely jazz compositions, since those are what make up most of this category. Adding in his Grammy for Best Soundtrack Album for Memoirs of a Geisha at those Grammy ceremonies John Williams had to make room on his shelf for his 19th and 20th Grammys. Munich wasn't the biggest success that everyone thought it was going to be. In fact, it was one of the lowest-earning Spielberg films in history, making just $47 million in the United States. The Oscar nominations gave it just a slight boost, but most of the talk surrounding 2005's film slate was focused on Brokeback Mountain and its repercussions around Hollywood. Eric Bana suffered the same curse after working on Munich that seemed to befall Jaiman Unsu after he starred in Amistad. Bana only got one more major leading role after Munich as the time traveler in the 2009 movie The Time Traveler's Wife. That same year, though, he had a role that was much meatier as the villainous Nero in the Star Trek movie reboot, and that was his top screen credit since 2005. Two months before Munich hit theaters, the world was going crazy over the announcement that Daniel Craig was set to take over the role of James Bond. And in November 2006, the world went even crazier as Daniel Craig knocked it out of the park in Casino Royale and would make four more James Bond films to become pretty much the biggest breakout star of Munich. And even though he had been honored with a directing nomination at the Oscars, One has to wonder if Spielberg wanted to re-examine his movie choices after Munich and decided to take some time off. Why Spielberg decided to not make a movie for three years is not publicly known. Spielberg interviews are a rare find in the years between 2005 and 2008. Spielberg did stay involved in movies in those three years. He produced Clint Eastwood's companion films Flag of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, which viewed the Battle of Iwo Jima from the American and Japanese sides. And he was executive producer for Michael Bay's first Transformer movie, which means Spielberg had a lot of pull in who was hired. But whether or not he suggested John Williams is not really known. John Williams himself wasn't doing anything when it would have been time to write music for Transformers in 2007. The maestro didn't write a note of music for films between November 2005 and November 2007. And one wonders if this decision came in tandem with Spielberg's alleged break from directing. There are no direct quotes from Spielberg or Williams to confirm whatever theory is out there, and I'm not going to use this podcast to contribute to them. John Williams did make a small contribution to pop culture in 2006 with a composition for NBC's coverage of professional football. The Sunday Night Football theme made its debut in the 2006 season and was meant to cover the opening of each show, but also cover transitions into commercials. Does this sound a bit familiar to you? It sounds like Williams will return to this structure for The Force Awakens in about 10 years' time with a theme for the Resistance. I remember the agonizing three-year wait from 2005 to 2008 for the next new John Williams score. But thankfully, we don't have to wait that long to talk about it on the baton. Join me on the next episode as I discuss the score to the fourth installment of the Indiana Jones saga and the music written for it. I'm going to have Brian Martell back with me for another fun discussion of this score, and I'm hoping Brian will be able to help me find some gems in this score and in the film. I always welcome emails from listeners about the show, including any thoughts about the music you heard in the episodes, and even the music I did not play on the show. You can reach me at jeffswim at AOL.com or by leaving a comment on the Podbean app. I don't have the ability to respond to reviews on Apple Podcasts, but please feel free to leave a glowing review of the show when you have a minute. Thanks for being here today. Until next time, the baton is down.